Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Le Vital Core Salon. I'm Kara, your host and salonaire and asker of questions. And each episode, my job is to introduce you to a modern woman leaving her unique stain on the world without letting bullshit or burnout stop her. If you're someone who generates lots of ideas, loves taking regular showers, or has ever wanted a do-over after interacting with a houseless member of your community, I have a woman I want you to meet. You see, no one grows up with the goal of being houseless at some point in their lives. Denise Sandoval, the founder of Lava May, realized this, and it set her on a path. Lava May is a nonprofit that began in San Francisco by converting public transportation buses into bathrooms on wheels, or sometimes referred to as mobile hygiene units. The goal is to deliver hygiene and reconnect people experiencing homelessness with their dignity. Donise began Lava May after learning there were 16 shower stalls and about as many toilets for San Francisco's 7,500, yes, 7,500, houseless men, women, and children. Donise is going to talk about how it came to be in so much wonderful detail. But in the four years since launching its service, Lava May has served 14,000 Californians and is scaling by sharing an open source toolkit to respond to the 2,000 plus requests for help from communities as far away as Zimbabwe and as close as New York. In that same period of time, she has won countless awards and been recognized by CNN, Toyota, and other organizations. Donise, however, is most proud of the honor bestowed upon her by her 12-year-old daughter who calls her a homeless superhero. And her daughter sure is right. Before we dive over to the conversation between Donise and I, don't forget to subscribe to Le Vital Core Salon wherever you listen to podcasts. Or if you want to be reminded of new episodes, text the word SALON to 444-999 to have future episodes sent right into your inbox. And if you think of someone while you're listening to this episode, please share it with them. Even sharing this episode with one person helps amplify the work Donise is doing with Lava May and supports this podcast. Voila, meet Donise. Donnie's, what is the work that you do at Lava May? So Lava May actually began by converting public transportation buses into showers and toilets for people experiencing homelessness. But um, we launched that five years ago, and since then we have grown our programming. So now we talk about really transforming the way that communities see and serve our unhoused neighbors around the globe. And Denise, I want to ask you a question about the word homeless versus unhoused versus houseless. I feel like when I was doing research, I saw that come up in different ways. Can you help educate me and I guess everyone else listening on the nuances of those words? Yes, absolutely. You know, we hear from our guests, which is what we call the people we serve, that Homeless is a set of circumstances. It's not an individual, right? Because we all define home in different ways. There are many of us who are housed 
you know, with a roof and four walls, and that still doesn't feel like home. What people are experiencing is houselessness or they're unhoused. And so we, you know, we're on a little personal mission to transform the way that people talk about this because words are powerful and it's just so much more accurate and so much more respectful to use the term like unhoused or houseless. I think this is really important. And please, as we go through this show today, if I'm getting it wrong or not using it right, help me be a better model for that. Deal? Absolutely. (laughs) Cool. So where did you get the buses? Where did you get the idea? How did this all come to be? So I'm probably a little bit loony. (laughs) I'm also just like, I am an ideas person. Um, Ideas come to me all the time. But um, in, I would say, around 2011, San Francisco really started to turn around from the economic downturn. And the city started exploding. The tech industry was growing here. And my neighborhood began to gentrify. And it was a neighborhood... Um, that was predominantly African-American middle-class neighborhood, but we really knew each other. Like I knew the people who lived next to me and across the street. And so when we began to see our neighbors get displaced because landlords wanted higher rents or um, whatever the reason was, it was really unsettling. We watched over a period of nine months of three of our neighbors, all gentlemen in their 80s got evicted and one by one, they, we watched as they took up residence in their cars, only to have those repossessed. And because the shelter wait lists back then were, and still are, sadly, over a 1,000 deep, they ended up on the streets. And as hard as we tried to connect them with some form of housing, it, we just couldn't make it happen. And we watched each, each of them eventually pass away. And that was so devastating. My daughter was five. And I couldn't explain to her why this was happening. So we decided as a family that we were going to do something. We started to volunteer. We started to donate. Um, And then one day, I took a cab ride that literally changed my life. As we hit the Tenderloin, which is the area in San Francisco that has the highest level uh, of people living on the streets, the cab driver leaned over his shoulder and he said to me, welcome to the land of broken dreams. And his words were so jarring that I don't, I don't remember what I was doing, but I stopped and I looked out the window. And despite having been through the tenderloin hundreds, if not thousands of times before, when I looked at people, my first thought was that not a single one of them, when they were little, ever dreamed of growing up to live on the streets. And yet there they were. And the thought of them as little children, like my then five-year-old daughter, pierced me. So I sort of doubled down on my desire to do something meaningful. And I said, okay, money and volunteering isn't really making me feel like I'm making a contribution. So I just said to myself, I know that there are probably things that aren't being done that could be done or maybe done better. And I decided I would just keep my eyes open. And, you know, when you're in that state of flow, things sort of fall together. So within a very short period of time, I passed the young woman on the street who was panhandling, and she was dirty and disheveled, but she kept saying over and over again that she would never be clean. And it made me wonder what her chances were for getting physically clean, because every visibly unhoused person I saw was struggling with hygiene. So I went home that night, and I hopped on the computer, 
And San Francisco has a wealth of information about the services it offered. And what I found shocked me. I learned that for the 7,500 officially unhoused people in the city, there were 16 shower stalls and about as many toilets. And I thought to myself, yeah, right? Shocking. And in a city where there are 107 millionaires per square mile and another 60 billionaires on top of that. And yet it was true. And I'm a little bit of a clean freak myself. And I thought, okay, if I couldn't have access to a bathroom and to a shower, I would just be a wreck. You know, I mean, and what opportunities can you access if you can't get and stay clean? So I thought, okay, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but maybe there's something I can do. And literally, um, a short time later, I saw an article in the local paper that was talking about the federal government giving our local um, transportation agency millions of dollars to retire the old diesel buses. And I'm a marketing person by, you know, background. And the bells went off in my head. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to do something good with something people love to hate? And so the idea for Lava May was born. Unreal. This is making <laughs> a little my- crazy. No, I, I love your looniness. If this is crazy, I love it. I need to ask you some questions to unpack this a little bit, because I think there's a lot of women listening who are idea generators. And I feel like I walk around seeing the potential and everything, which can be exhausting and exhilarating most days. I feel like we probably have a little bit of that in common. But I want to ask about the experience, because I think... I'm getting to talk to you after you made this idea a reality, right? Yeah. I think there's there's something interesting sometimes about that space from when you got out of the cab. Like, what did you do with that? Because I, I know what that kind of flash of inspiration feels like, where it, you literally get this really visceral hit, right? Yeah. What did you do in the interim and in the short term? You know, I think I just sort of let it do, um, and it wouldn't leave me. Um, in the past, I know all sorts of ideas I've had, not, not necessarily purpose-driven, um, sometimes purely profit-driven. I've had these ideas. I've been excited about them. I've gone as far as to do some preliminary research. Um, but when I thought about what it would take to bring it to fruition, it just felt like more than I wanted to do, and so I would leave it. But the thing for me with this was that I could no longer walk around or drive around the city without being reduced to utter tears. You know, homelessness is an issue in every city across this country and in many small towns um, and suburbs as well. But in San Francisco, because we're such a small geographic city, we're seven by seven, it is just unbelievably shockingly visible. Like people come to visit this city and they cannot believe the number of people they see living on our streets. And so there was nowhere to escape this. And I just felt like my heart was being ripped open. Like my, my husband and my daughter would be like, stop looking, you know, wear sunshades, read something while you're driving. Because I was, I was just a puddle of tears all the time. And I think that that, you know, it wasn't just like visceral. It was, deeply um, affecting to me. I'm kind of like a hyper-empath. 
my husband likes to tease me and say, like, I'm the Deanna Troy of Star Trek Next Generation. (laughs) God, it's what I'm hoping, not that bad. But, But with this issue, it is totally true. And so, you know, I think that that was the difference for me that fueled the idea and turned it into action. And it sounds like listening to you, like you're getting these pings constantly. So it's one, it's impossible to ignore. It sounds like it also puts you into this state of heightened awareness. Like I imagine on some level, everything that you're interacting with now that this sort of seed has been planted with you is being kind of cross-referenced back to the idea, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. It's like it's the lens I bring to everything, every opportunity, every person I'm talking to, to everything. (laughs) So we heard about your husband and your daughter's perspective as you're in this marination phase, right? Yeah. When did it start trickling out into real action and momentum? So I think the first thing I did was um, look at my network um, and figure out if I had any connections to the then czar of homelessness, a gentleman named Bevan Dufty. And it turned out I had a very close connection. So they managed to um, get me in front of him. And I sat down to share my idea with him. And he's a very patient and gracious man. But I literally, even though I didn't see him do this, I could feel him rolling his eyes on the back of his head. And it wasn't because he necessarily thought the idea was bad, but I think essentially he was inundated with regular citizens coming in all the time, you know, to say, we can do something better. This is my idea, but then never sticking around to actually do anything about it. So as I shared my idea with him, he leans across the table from me and says, okay, I want you to go and talk to these people and then come back to me after you find out what they think. And he gave me literally like a list of 50 people, leaders in, um, yeah, other organizations who were working in this space. And I think he thought that that would deter me and I would go away. But over the course of a few months, I met with everyone. And I heard the same thing. I think there was a part of me that thought one of two things was going to happen. It was either that everybody would tell me that this was a terrible idea and that it was never going to work, or that they would say, interesting idea, but you have never worked with people who are unhoused, so you don't know what you're doing. If you go help us raise money, we'll do it. But neither of those happened. Everybody heard me out and then said, wow, that's kind of wacky, but we so desperately need that. So if you go make it happen, we'll support you. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of realized that if I didn't actually do this, nobody else was going to, and that, you know, our neighbors on the street were going to be struggling with this, you know, for who knows how long. So I went back to him, and I think I absolutely took his breath away. That um, I showed up again, and I said, okay, I did it all. And then he said, what do you want? <laughs> I want those buses. I want to figure out how to access water. I want all these things. And he became our champion and helped us, you know, bring all the city agencies together that would touch the work we do um, in order to enable us to be able to pull this off. I have to say bravo, because I feel like (laughs) in situations that are parallel to what you described, I feel like sometimes people have been really kind and only given me like a six inch hurdle to 
to to scale just to prove that I was committed to something. That to me sounds like you were up against literally a 50 foot hurdle that you had to jump over. (laughs) It did feel like that in the moment, but you know, uh, there is this part of me, I don't know if it's like I'm competitive or I don't know what, but I just looked at him, you know, that first time I was sitting in front of him and said, I'll show you, I'm going to get through this list. (laughs) You're not going to get rid of me that easily. (laughs) I'm sure the nonverbal quasi eye roll probably helped that a little bit, right? (laughs) It did. (laughs) Had he listened sweetly and empathetically, (laughs) like that might have been a different response, right? Isn't that funny? I don't think I've ever thought about it, but it's so true how just little nuanced things could have totally changed and changed the course of this effort. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you were not deterred. And so how did it happen like once all of these other agencies are involved? Because I hear you describe like you got his buy-in and then everyone else got involved. And to me, I feel like that kind of bureaucracy is sometimes a recipe for a project to just stagnate. Oh my God, you have no idea. (laughs) You know, I mean, (laughs) I have to tell you, my first job out of college was as a political research analyst um, in state government in Texas. And I went in so Pollyanna and starry eyed and in awe. And after I'd spent a year and a half doing it, I didn't vote for like the next six years. (laughs) So, you know, just, uh, I don't know, uh, decimated by what I witnessed. And I think as a result, I've always believed that innovation and government were oxymorons, which is a terrible thing to say. I know, but but um, it it proves its case often. (laughs) It does. It does. And it's not that that's a generalization. I'm not saying that it never happens, but it does feel like it's an uphill battle. Um, Yes. So the getting people to the table, I think, Here's the funny thing, because we were just trying to create a pilot that we were going to run for six months, I think people got to the table and they're like, this is, this is crazy, this woman's a little loony, but hey, what, it's no skin off of our nose to give her access to fire hydrants and to let her dump water here and to, you know, set up sidewalk access and so on and so forth. So people, you know, generally got excited and said yes. Um, so then the next biggest hurdle was actually getting um, the bus converted and the biggest challenge around that, you know, was sort of twofold. The um, first was that I had this vision to take this bus and put as many showers on there as possible and possibly, you know, just one toilet because I figured the showers were the hardest thing to get in some ways. And so I found an amazing architect, a uh, gentleman by the name of Brett Turpeluck. He was the lead architect on a major uh, museum here under Renzo Piano, the Italian architect. And he fell in love with San Francisco and decided to stay. And I had met him randomly and so called him and said, I have this idea. And he was really intrigued. And he said, I'd love to work with you on this. So we met and started, you know, coming up with preliminary ideas for the bus. And then one day in one of our meetings, we look up literally like simultaneously and have this look on our faces. And we both were thinking the same thing. And that was that we hadn't bothered to go out and talk to the people that we were trying to serve, which was the most ridiculous thing we, you know, we could have done is, is to leave them out of this process. So but you thought of next, it. There are a lot of projects that move goodness. forward <laughs> that don't. Right. So we spent the next three months on the street talking to people, hosting a couple of focus groups, and 
we asked people what they wanted. We had this immense laundry list of items, but we heard three things over and over again. The first was that when you live on the streets, your entire life is in the public eye. You have never have a moment of privacy or true respite, which I can't even fathom. The second is if you are a woman or you're LGBTQ, the incidents of attack in the showers, because they're usually like those you know, open high school showers, is incredibly high. And then lastly, if you have a disability, and somewhere between 45 and 62% of the population has some form of disability, you might find a place that accommodates your needs but doesn't keep you safe, or maybe you find a place that's safe but doesn't accommodate your needs. So we wanted to meet all three of those needs, which means that we scrapped our designs and we opted to just create two full private bathrooms that could be accessible through the two doors of the bus. The first one had uh, a wheelchair lift. We also wanted the design to be really beautiful because so much of what people get when they are unhoused are the cast-offs. And even though the bus was used, we could make it look amazing. So we thought very carefully about the color blue because blue is so soothing that we would use. We decided to add in skylights. We um, created a sound system so that we could have, you know, beautiful music, you know, of people's choice piped in. Kohler, the bathroom fixtures company, became a partner of ours. They reached out and said, what can we do? We want to donate everything. And so we had beautiful bathroom fixtures. Um, we used beautiful hygiene products and beautiful towels. The whole idea is that everything about Lava May's experience for people would say to them, you deserve this. You are worthy, right? And so, you know, it all started to come together. Um, yeah. Wow. So you can't see me, and I didn't really let you know that I'm a super empath too, but I feel like I'm tearing up listening to what you're describing because it's amazing oh. in terms of treating people as human beings and giving them this really as as you would say, radical, well, I guess you would say radical hospitality, but I'll say radically hospitable. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, you know, the thing we learned after we launched, I mean, within like just a few weeks, as I was watching my team, you know, and, um, deliver this service, was that the way you serve people is actually more important than the service itself. I mean, showers are vital, right? If you think about it, they are so fundamental to our sense of dignity. And dignity is this two-way thing. It's how you feel about yourself, but it's also how people treat you. And if you are unclean, people are not so kind. Um, but when you think about, you can get a service. Um, one of my examples, I don't know what the DMV is like in Catskills where you are, but here in San Francisco, our DMV is terrible. It's an old building. It hasn't been remodeled ever. Um, the lighting is dingy. Nobody's happy to work there. Nobody's happy to go there. But you can walk in the door and you can get your needs met. You get your driver's license or your license plates, whatever it is you need. But you want to get out as quickly as possible and you want to never have to go back. And sadly, that is too often what services are like for people experiencing homelessness. And so, you know, we thought, what happens to us when we go to some place that makes us feel seen, that makes us feel special, right? Radical hospitality defines the philosophy which we do everything. It's the way that we treat 
our unhoused neighbors and thinking of them as neighbors is also pivotal to this because they are. They live in the same communities we live. The way we engage with our volunteers and our partners, it is just the way we try and live um, everything that we do here because Brene Brown, in her new book, she talks about the importance of belonging, right? And I think we are at a time in our country's history, and maybe throughout the world, but I, you know, really know here, where the sense of isolation and depression of not really having connection with people is at an all-time high, and it's causing so many problems. And so if we could change that, if we could begin to see the invisible, which is all of us in so many ways and times, but especially people who we see as outcasts and who wander our cities feeling unseen and unwanted. Donise, I feel like my mind is blown. Permission to share a little tangential story with you? Yes, please. So first off, when you brought up the DMV, I feel like for the past several years, and I would, I would, I would probably say this got real intense for me leading up to the last presidential election, I feel like I was looking at my work as a health and lifestyle strategist where I was talking to women and having these really intense private conversations about what's not working. And a part of the reason for starting this podcast was I recognized isolation was Mm -hmm. running through a lot of that. Like the fact that people were hiring me because they didn't have the people in their lives To be able to talk and have a real human-to-human, unbiased, supportive conversation. You know, I think sometimes I'm like, I first off, I love doing this work, but then I can't believe I have to do this work. And then I was seeing that kind of energy amplify as everything else was becoming more unraveled. And the disconnect between people is just off the charts right now. Exactly. And I've been looking at that, and I've also been geeking out about human-centered design over the last few years, because I think how we as people interact with each other, but also the systems that we're in, is something that's been really fascinating. And a friend had said, have you ever heard of human-centered design? And then I started devouring books. And I recently just finished up a fellowship with the Good Work Institute here in the Hudson Valley above New York. And as part of that, it was thinking about, like, what is the kind of work? What is the kind of stuff that you want to be doing out there? And the DMV was how I described it. And I'm still fumbling <laughs> for the words of what's what's sort of next for me or this next this next act in my career. But I was saying that I, I had this real fascination by how people interact with each other and interact with systems. And I realized that was so esoteric and nebulous that no one was going to know what I was talking about. And I, re- I was like, I have to find a way to, to, to break this down. And I have, a, I have a special curiosity for the seemingly mundane things. And so the DMV was how I explained what I'm really into and how, like, what that. if we went to the DMV and came out not hating ourselves or the people that work there or the experience? Like, what would that change energetically in every interaction you have the rest of that day? Yeah, I, it, that would be so incredibly powerful, you know. And I, I love that you're fascinated with the mundane because most of our lives are centered around, you know, uh, 
the mundane, you know, uh, and it is so often dehumanizing. Um, I was telling my husband the other day, it's like, you know, there is a, a designer who I had the good fortune to meet. I really like him. His name is Karim Rashid, right? And he started looking at, you know, the redesign of the mundane things, our trash cans, our, you know, potato peelers, whatever. I think he's recently done a hotel. But it was this idea that all things could be beautiful and how design has such an incredible impact, even if we're not consciously registering that. And it's like one of the reasons all of these tech companies spend so much money to make their um, headquarter offices and, you know, branch offices and whatnot so beautiful and fun and engaging for their staff. And, and then you look at, like, nonprofits who are scrambling for funds and whose donors want you just to spend everything on programs only and nothing else, but you go to work in these dreary, dark places that do not feed your soul or spirit, and yet you're supposed to come up with lots of room and space in your life to, you know, to continue to serve endlessly. So I would, yes, please continue, you know, looking at that opportunity. We need more people doing that. <laughs> I will. I will. But I want to get back to your story. <laughs> you You said something really interesting about sort of seeing the invisible around you, that these these people were invisible. And I guess that brings up a couple questions. I guess on one hand, it's like, one, how do you train yourself to see that? I think it's it brings up so many emotions for people. I think it's it's really hard to ask people to do that or to expect people to do that. And then I guess my other question a sort of it's a it's a smorgasbord here on Le Vital Core Salon. But the <laughs> second question is really around for the people who do choose to see the invisible neighbors around us, what can they do to navigate those interactions? Mm, good question. So I think you know one of our challenges as human beings, and especially like Americans, where we have this idea that things need to be big and grand, and we get stymied by the fact that um, small gestures seem insignificant. And I feel the exact opposite. To look someone in the eye, to nod your head, to say good morning, just to witness and acknowledge their existence is an incredibly powerful gift. And I'll share a story. Um, I grew up in Texas in, um, you know, relatively medium-ish town. But it was still, you know, part of, I think of it as the South. And people are generally friendly when you're out and about. And so when you pass people on the sidewalk, you're not pretending not to see each other. You're saying good morning or hello or nodding your head. But, you know, you, you acknowledge their existence. Whereas in big cities and in San Francisco in particular, you know, I could be one of two people walking down the sidewalk on the street and we are working actively to pretend the other person is not there. And I got really tired of this about a year and a half ago and decided, <laughs> you know what, I'm going to reconnect with my old life and I am just going to acknowledge people as I pass them. I'm going to say good morning, I'm going to smile, I'll do something. And maybe they'll rebuff me and maybe I'll feel terrible, but I'm just going to do it. And it had this amazing effect on me. 
And I was so surprised at people's responses. If I did that, people always responded in kind and sometimes even more warmly than I had. And it really changed my sense of connection to this city. It made me feel like I was really part of this complex fabric of people from all over the place, but I felt the sense of belonging, right? Um, and then one day I came out of a coffee shop and about, I don't know, 150 feet ahead of me was a woman sitting on the sidewalk surrounded by her belongings and her little dog. And as I approached her, I called out, good morning. And she looked up at me as I, you know, got in front of her and she said, can you see me? And my first thought, sadly, was like, oh, she must be struggling with a little bit of mental illness. But then I said to her, yes, you're sitting right there in front of me. What happened next utterly took me by surprise. Her eyes welled with tears. And then she said to me, you were the first person in an entire week to acknowledge my existence. I thought I was a ghost. And all I did was say good morning. Right? So this is what I mean when I say... How do you not cry 10 times a day? Oh, I do. Okay. (laughs) I was like, man, you Uh, seem superhuman. (laughs) No. Uh, Ask ask my husband and my daughter. I'm definitely not. And, you know, one of my board members is like, every time you talk about Lava May, you cry. (laughs) I'm trying to get better. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's not an easy thing. I get moved all the time by these little tiny snippets of... Um, these, these revelations that come to me, right, and the exchanges that I have with people. And so this is what I tell people. It doesn't have to be big. These micro acts of kindness are incredibly powerful, right? And then if you want to continue to deepen the relationship, you know, it, it's like a dance, just like with anyone else you meet. You don't go up to someone and ask them, well, why are you here and how did you get something? That's incredibly personal, so, you know, for people I continue to pass over and over again or guests that we serve who are new, I just start with, hey, I'm Donise, you know, tell me your name. Blah, blah, blah. And then the next time I, you know, if I see them again, I call them by name. And then maybe one morning I'll say, hey, do you need coffee or do you need breakfast? And that gives me a chance to go get something for them and come back and maybe have a little chat. And, of course, you always have to gauge your own personal sense of comfort, right? Because there is a percentage of people on the streets who have some severe mental illness. We are failing people so horribly by not providing them with the services and care that they need. And so if you don't feel safe or comfortable, you know, you can just make eye contact and move on. Or what I say too is, in your mind, wish them well. Because I think even that has power and energy, right? So it is about just, you know, moving into that dance of connection at the pace and at the level that you feel comfortable. But over time, you could find yourself in a really fascinating relationship with someone who gives you an insight into this complicated issue. And I think one of the things that is probably my pet peeve is when I meet people who ask me, what's the silver bullet to ending homelessness and there isn't one. I mean, yes, we know housing first works and we need that. But in cities like San Francisco where there's not even housing for people who are in the you know upper middle class, what are we doing? We can't Truth. build our way out of this, right? Um, and so part of it is reconnecting. And there's all of this 
neuroscience research that's being done that talks about how we must heal our country in order to be, you know, evolutionarily sustainable. We have to be able to create those human-to-human connections, you know, amongst all of us. And that is something we're really struggling with right now. Yes. And I want to circle back to interacting with our invisible neighbors and and ask a follow-up question, if you don't mind. Sure. What happens when you're asked for money? Mm, What is a a kind and a compassionate way to handle that in the moment? Because I know, like, I know for Craig and I, as a couple, like, we have a certain amount of money that that we can give away each month, right? Here and there, yeah. or or donate it online, or things like that. But I, I feel like it's really awkward in that moment when you want to be kind and you want to be compassionate and you want to make that connection, and then you're you're hit with, "What can you do to help me? Can I have money?" Right. Exactly. You know, the answer "no" is such an uncomfortable thing for so many of us. Right. For um, a lot of the listeners, too. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Um, but I think these kinds of things are something that you have to sort of decide for yourself. So, for example, for you and your husband, if you say, you know, we have $25 a month that we would be willing to give to people as we pass them on the streets, and here's how we'd like to handle it. Um, or we would prefer to funnel our money to an organization that is working with people who are unhoused and, you know, and have impact that way. But what does that mean when we pass people on the street? Um, so I think it is perfectly okay to say, you know, no, I actually, I don't have anything I can share today, but I wish you well. And a lot of people receive that blessing really beautifully. And some people might be angry and you have to be okay with the fact that not everybody's okay with no, right? And, and that's uncomfortable. Um, for me personally, what we try and do in our family is create little hygiene kits. So my husband and I end up traveling a lot, and um, I bring home soaps and shampoos, and we order pairs of socks and things like that. And then my daughter will often create little notes that say, you were not forgotten, or don't give up, things like that. And we package them up in little Ziploc baggies, and then... Um, if I have them, I'll add a dollar or two because, you know, I think a lot of times with the money thing, there is an assumption that people will be using that for drugs or alcohol. And, you know, that's a judgment. I actually don't necessarily think that that's true. Sometimes it makes a difference between somebody being able to walk into a subway and get a sandwich and that be their only meal or not. Um, but the money thing is also, you know, a personal, you know, your personal comfort level. But hygiene kits um, are so vital Socks are the number one most requested item because people sometimes wear them for so long, they literally have to peel them off their feet, right? So little gifts of kindness if you want. But, you know, what hurts me the most is to, you know, be on the street and see someone who's asking or standing there with a sign and literally hundreds of people will walk past them without acknowledging at all, right? Not a, not a no, not a, I don't have anything to spare today, nothing. Just pretend that they're just not there. And that is so demoralizing. That, I think, is something we should really work to change. Yes. And I want to thank you for giving 
people a way to change that. I think sometimes people just don't know what to do, so then they do nothing. Yes. And then, exactly. you know, I know living in New York City for 11 years, like, I know I would walk by people and I would try to at least always make eye contact, but I realized I never knew what do I do in this situation. And for me, like, I ended up just finding a place that I could volunteer to help with meal deliveries to certain pockets around the city. Not everyone has that time or luxury, and not everyone knows what to do with it. So I think everything that you just shared with with me and people listening is so huge. It's such a great how-to. Excellent. I'm glad. (laughs) I feel like I'm curious, and, and maybe this will help the listeners also understand your services and how it's fitting into the community and and what people experience. Can you take us through, like, as if I was a guest, what, what happens? How do I find out about you? How do I get there? So we have two big programs. The first is um, obviously our mobile hygiene. Um, And the way it works is we work in, in partnership. Our goal is to provide as many access to as many critical services that people need as possible. So we'll pull up in front of a partner and maybe they're a healthcare facility. Um, maybe it's our public library here where they have social workers on staff who are working, you know, with people who are unhoused to help them connect with other services, whatever that looks like. But essentially we'll pull up with our mobile hygiene units. Um, in San Francisco, we tap into um fire hydrants to access our water. We get all hooked up. Um, We use on-demand water heaters. And then when the team is ready, we have these um, little digital tablets. We use a CRM uh, program from Salesforce to check people in. So if they're uh, returning guests, we'll have information on them about, you know, how many times they've used our service. We collect some demographic information, and then periodically we try and collect a little bit more info so that we can understand, you know, where they are in their own process. Are they looking for housing? Are they looking for jobs? Are they having health issues? Those kinds of things. And helps us um, kind of track trends and share the information with other organizations as well. Um, And so uh, people will get about a 15 to 20 minute shower. um, And they are, we have many of them who will spend the entire time where they're with us because that is where they feel the most seen and safe and have, you know, a sense of just, like I said, belonging. So when it's their turn, they get fresh towels. There are toiletries on board. Um, and then they come out and we, you know, hopefully are directing them to the partners or they can use the partner services while they're waiting and, um, then when we can, we leave them with hygiene kits. When we have clean clothes that people need, you know, we'll share those as well. And so we are at a location around six hours at a time. And the number of people we serve depends upon how many people we're serving that have a disability that day, what the weather is like. But we can serve up to 40 or 42 people a day when we're being hyper-efficient. Wow. Our other program, yeah, I know, it's pretty amazing. And it, it is so profound. We literally, to this day, still feel like one person goes in to take a shower and it's a totally different person that emerges, right? The ability to wash away 
the grime, the ability to stand under this hot shower where you feel renewed and refreshed and as if you have value and you know you'll walk out and you won't be walking down the street with people trying to avoid you because you don't smell good or whatever. Or if you have a job that you're trying to get to because we have a good percentage of people who have jobs. San Francisco is a city where HUD has now declared that $100,000 a year is low income, right? So there are a lot, yeah, there are a lot of people who fall into the category of working poor. And if they got evicted, getting back into housing is really challenging for them. So they're living in their cars. Um, their kids are still going to school, but they're grappling with, you know, how to recover from the financial setback they've had. Our second program, which we started two years after we launched Mobile Hygiene, is called Pop-Up Care Villages. And this, I think, is Lava May at its best. Um, we started listening to our guests who were telling us that they were having to run to four or five locations after they showered just to get critical needs met. And we had a partner called Project Homeless Connect who did these quarterly huge events where they brought in you know, 50 to 60 providers across, you know, the spectrum to provide all sorts of services. So like this one day of one-stop shop. But it was only happening quarterly and it was taking place in this big, giant auditorium. And so I said to them, we want to do what you do, but we want to bring it to the street, right? Because part of radical hospitality is not just treating people well, but one of the most profound acts of care is to actually take, you know, the service to where people are. And in our case, it's to the street. So um, we launched these pop-up care villages, and the whole goal was to bring as many providers as possible under sort of three pillars. The first was restorative, which is haircuts, showers, and clothes. The second is advancement, so it's everything from medical, dental, mental health, employment services, housing when you can, legal services. And the third that really sort of completes the circle is um, the sense of community. So we provide a hot breakfast and a hot lunch. We have live music because music is so healing. We do arts programs. We do yoga and meditation. Um, we do body work. And so it is really, when you witness these, sometimes we have 25 partners out on the street with us. It is profoundly beautiful and moving, first of all, to see so many people collaborating beautifully together to serve our unhoused neighbors. And there is so much uh, it's so lively uh, and amazing. Our guests actually call it um, Burning Man for the Unhoused. <laughs> so I love that. <laughs> so you come in and you register and you, you're alerted to all the services that are available. And then you are given a little passport um, and you go around to the different services that you're trying to access to get your needs met. And then there's an exit survey at the end so we can find out what your experience was like, what worked, what didn't work, what we could do better. So it is really like a, a true human-centered, you know, uh, festival. This sounds amazing. And again, I feel like we, we have some synchronicity that I did not expect. So the the place that I live in, it's it's a town called Hurley, but we're right next to the city of Kingston here in, in New York. And I th it's their 10th anniversary this year, but a while back on the podcast, I interviewed Amy Gardner, who's the director of operations for a music festival called O Positive. And it was mm. literally founded 10 years ago when I believe this, the legend is when a dentist wanted a band that he really liked that I think was on tour 
to stop and play in Kingston. And Kingston has been seeing a lot of gentrification in the last 10 years um, as Brooklyn and New York City get too unsustainable to live in, much right. like San Francisco. Everyone's just sort of fleeing. It's a festival where they trade the art of medicine for the medicine of art. And so Ooh. all of the artists who put up murals around town during the festival and all of the performing artists that play music during the festival get loved up and cared for similar to what you're describing with for your guests in this wow. in the pop-up event and it it's really inspiring to see and it's also really awesome as a rock and roll fan to go to a show and have you know whoever comes on stage talk about how they got a new retainer or they you know they they got a fill-in done and or they you know they got a checkup for that. the first time in you know five yeah. years because they're uninsured I know that is so brilliant. I mean, there is such synergy um, between displacement and our creative class. Like artists are amongst some of the hardest hit in these communities, right? Because they're not making tons of money, they're not insured, and when um, they're you know subject to eviction, because you know usually they're the first people to move into a blighted area and transform it, and then it becomes trendy and hipsterish, and then the prices go and up and they're pushed out. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I saw it just in my 11 years in New York, like Williamsburg, go from oh, it gosh, was desolate yeah. warehouses to now it's completely unaffordable for people who are in the middle class. <laughs> yeah, sadly. Can you talk for a minute? Because I think as we've been talking and as I was researching for this show, I I feel like... You might be able to answer this, or it might be a question you want to punt on. Either way, I'm wherever you're at. But it just feels to me that any of us could be like a stone's throw away from being houseless. You know, there's been a lot in the papers recently about um, how, I don't know, isn't it something like 75% of Americans report that there's $400 between them and nothing. You know, I think when um, there was a recent government shutdown, we, they began to expose how really vulnerable so many of us are, you know, not having safety nets. I think one of the differences for some people is that they do have a safety net of people who would help them either financially or allow them to couch surf. Although, Technically, the federal government counts couch surfing as being unhoused. Um, but, you know, for the people who don't have that, it is a very scary proposition. And I do think that um, with the stratification of wealth in this country, there is a greater and greater number of people who are really vulnerable. And I think that one of the things that worries me the most is that we have had 10 years of unprecedented economic prosperity, and yet there's still lots of people who are being left behind. But imagine when the economy goes down, right? Because it's a cycle. It goes up, and then it goes down. And when it goes down, we have gotten rid of so many safety nets for people. I'm really worried about what might happen. I found myself with that same worry, thinking about everything and learning about what you do. And I always do a lot of research, like, 
over time. I usually try to book my guests at least a few weeks in advance so I can kind of come at their story, back up from it, zoom into it, back up from it, zoom into it. Right. But yeah, I I feel like what you're doing just gives me so much hope. And I, I think you're doing it in a way that really just makes my heart open up. But then also there is this undercurrent of a lot of us are really close to it. Yes, exactly. And, you know, in all truth and honesty, my own family, uh, when I was 16, my, my dad had um, worked for the federal government. And then um, I guess when I was around 11 or 12, made the switch to the private sector and became what he is at his heart, which is an entrepreneur. And entrepreneurs are risk takers. And he had some amazing successes and one or two devastating losses. And the first time around was so devastating that we literally were only able to keep the roof over our heads because my grandmothers, who didn't have that much themselves, but gave everything they could to ensure that we didn't lose our home, right? So there, you know, it's something that, that touched my life. And if we had not had family to help, I don't know where I would be now. Wow. Thank you for sharing that with us. I think we're starting to get a little bit more of a picture, like where where this is so rooted for you. Yes. And the funny thing is, I didn't even remember that until two years into starting Lava May. What? Um, one of our early, yeah, I know. Isn't that crazy? One of our early funders, uh, a, a foundation called Draper Richards Kaplan, um, they support uh, emerging social entrepreneurs, and there's a, they host a retreat every year for the entrepreneurs. And the first one I went to, one of the workshops was held by a gentleman named uh, Marshall Gantz. He's amazing. You should look him up. Anyway, he does this program at Harvard called Public Narrative, and it is really designed to help people who are leading social movements and working in you know, the purpose-driven field really connect with why they do the work they do. So he pushes you hard. You know, he'll ask you, why do you do the work we do? And I, I could have given him my story, and he would have like, oh, he'd be pushing, 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 because he believes that those of us who are doing this kind of work had some sort of pain point in our life that really shaped us. There was something. And so in that workshop, I got back to that place where that happened. And the reason I didn't remember it is because it was um, – it was surrounded by shame for me because I think I realized that at the age of 16, I could have done something, right? I could have taken a part-time job to sort of help lift my family out of this, but um, it didn't even occur to me, right? And being the kind of person I am now and looking back on myself, I'm like, wow, how could I have been so out of touch, so self-centered? to not have done anything to help my dad, who would never in a million years have expected my brother or me or my mom to do something. He's a strong Latino man. But it filled me with shame when I realized, you know, that I had done nothing to help contribute and that it was such a heavy burden and how, how much less painful it would have been for all of us if every single one of us rolled up our sleeves and did something. Wow. 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 I feel like I'm hearing that and and just that is so not easy work to do. I huge props and <laughs> giant respect coming coming at you. 
Thank you. Well, he doesn't let you get away with less. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you knew when you signed up, like, there's no turning back. <laughs> right. <laughs> I feel like the fellowship that I, I just finished was similar in that it was a real deep dive into who are you? Like, who is who is self, right? And then right. how does that intersect with place? And, you know, I think, and then how does that inform next? And I think that was like a hugely um, triggering, exciting, wonderful. Yeah. Like, I feel like it, it, it pushes all the feels buttons all at once. And then to have to stand and, and boil all of that down into a 10-minute presentation in front of all of the fellows, you're like, Ugh. I think I slept yes. for about three days after. <laughs> I can imagine. You probably know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, it is definitely, it's like a pound of flesh. <laughs> yes. So it sounds like, I mean, you've been doing not just the work at Lava May, you've also been doing the work on you as an entrepreneur. And that is both sound like some days can be a, a pretty big load. I have to ask, have you ever burnt out doing this work? <laughs> I've come very, very close. When I started this, I think the first seven to eight months, I was pretty much doing this by myself. And, you know, when it's in ideation and it, it's not an actual thing yet, but you're still having to put all the pieces together, it's still really demanding. And I had a young daughter and trying to figure out how to make it work. My husband's a, a partner in a law firm and he's busy. Um, so, you know, there was always you know, the challenge of managing my time and, and I felt it felt very Sisyphean, you know, what I was trying to create. I mean, I, I cannot tell you how instrumental having a partner who supports you is. Um, I, there were days I'd walk in the door and just lie down on the floor and say, I can't do this. And my husband, without missing a beat, would just look me in the eye and say, yes, you can. You know, <laughs> and he still does it to this day. But I would say about a little over a year ago, I was beginning to, you know, frazzle at the seams. You know, this huge challenge. I mean, we've grown the organization. We now are 26 people strong. Um, we have a branch in Los Angeles. We are now also in the East Bay. And the work is unbelievably beautiful and potent, but it is also so difficult. We carry the stories of our guests, many of them who have experienced so much trauma, just the trauma of living on the streets. One example is, you know, somewhere between 45 and 60% of the women who are experiencing homelessness are escaping violence in their homes. Somewhere between 95 and 100% of the women who are on the streets are experiencing sexual assaults on a regular basis, right? Ugh. And so our teens suffer secondary trauma. And holding them and supporting them um, is, a, you know, hard. And... Um, I think there are days where I walk away and I'm just like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. So I've done a lot of work on myself. I, I'm an absolute believer in mental health checkups, just like you get a physical one. Um, I did a whole you know, few months of um, somatic therapy, which is this idea that you know, when you suffer trauma, even if it's secondary trauma, you can talk your way through it, you can see it, you can understand it. But 
trauma lodges in your body. And if you can't find where it's sitting in your body and deal with that and release it, then you're just constantly re-triggered. So that was very, very powerful for me. And my therapist was very much also about, oh, my God, you're like this adrenaline junkie and you have to find a way to pull back or you are not going to make this because you're in a marathon, not a sprint. And I am by nature a sprinter, um, maybe not literally, but um, in all other ways. And it really hit home. So now I try and just be very conscious about the way, even at the speed at which I walk, because I'm a fast walker. And it's like it kicks in my adrenaline and then I just start going. And so I try and slow down the way I walk. I try and either meditate every day or listen to a Dharma talk. I have fallen in love with a woman named Sarah Blondin. And I listen to her and I feel renewed and refreshed and healed on some level. And so she's like on my go-to list, you know, for feeling um, recharged. So I really am trying to get better at self-care, but I think it's not something that, you know, a lot of people are good at. I think women are particularly bad at it, and I come from a long line of women who the message was, it's everybody before you. You sacrifice yourself and your needs in order to take care of other people, and growing up, I swear, that would never be me. That will never be me. But it's really hard to swim against the tide. (laughs) Yeah, the genetic fibers go deep, right? Yes. I love that you're sharing all this because I heard you say the word adrenaline junkie. And like I said, my background has been with working with a lot of overachieving type A women. So adrenaline really becomes a drug of choice. Like people, you know, people may not have any problems with alcohol. They may not have any problems with drugs, but they love like cranking themselves up really tight all the time. Exactly. And I love that you equated that almost with, you know, these addictive things because it is. There is something about, oh my God, did you just see how much I accomplished? It's amazing but you're completely wiped out. (laughs) That's not good. (laughs) That's not healthy. Well, it's funny. At one point I read, and I'm I'm totally spacing on the name, but it's basically Workaholics Anonymous's book, which if you read it, and I remember talking about it with a friend of mine that is an alcoholic in recovery and sort of we realized it was like the same exact book. They had just like rewritten it for workaholics. And the yeah. the, the science geek in me really was like, this has got to be adrenaline. You're just, you're addicted to adrenaline and you're addicted to the cortisol hit. You yeah. know, I, I would probably say what you're describing is actually, now that I think about it a little bit more in depth, is probably a cortisol junkie because adrenaline is such that like, that quick bounce, like get out of danger. But cortisol mm. is like that lingering. Okay, I'm going to... Change my language. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Let's hope you don't need that language because maybe you'll be a, yeah, a cortisol junkie in recovery. <laughs> <laughs> that that would be really great. Yeah, I I um, tried to envision myself moving through amber, you know, and Ooh. if you've ever seen that the sap on trees and stuff like that, you, you can't move fast through that stuff. There's no way. So it's a little visualization I do for myself to just slow it down and decide that less but better is what I want to achieve. 
Nice. And even just your example about slowing down how you walk, like your natural default is like, you know, to just barrel down the street. And I totally know that, although your legs are probably longer than mine because I'm only four foot 11. Uh, (laughs) So you can probably really make tracks. But I, you know, it's those small changes. I think people get really caught up in this notion of self-care that it's like, you've got to take the day off and you've got to go to therapy and then you've got to come home and take a bath or maybe get a massage before you do either of those things. And that has to be this like really expensive and, mm. and this, this act of self-care that also leaves you time poor. But it, it can literally yeah. be just slow down how you walk connect with other human beings while you're slowing down your pace right like that it it doesn't have to be so disruptive it can fit into our lives right yeah i think we've been seduced by the grand right that it has to be big it's the same as how we help people it has to be grand or it has no value and i i really do think you've hit on it it's like these small incremental changes lead to huge transformation, right? Sometimes you just chip away at the mountain a piece at a time, and before you know it, it comes tumbling down. Yes. It's funny. I've recently interviewed Sharon Rowe, who's the founder of Eco Bags. And literally, she wrote a book on its tiny business, which is sort of her approach to business. But what was so fascinating with her story is when we went back and looked at like, all right, 30 years ago, you were walking home and you got fed up with seeing single-use plastic bags littering your neighborhood. And you just started like, okay, how do I get rid of the plastic bag? Well, I need something else Mm. that I can use over and over again. And I remember seeing these bags when I was backpacking in France. Okay, let me get one of those bags. And then other people saw her using her bag. And then they wanted a bag. And it just started as... I just want to replace a bag. Let me just do it myself. And 30 years later, it's a, a multi-million dollar business, right? right? Like, so we we do get caught up in, in seduced by the grand and really forget that over time, all of these things, just like our terrible interest rates, will compound your money. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Oh, Donise, this has been such a conversation of joy and learning and inspiration. I want to flip it back at you because I, I feel like I've been firing questions at you. I have one more, but I feel like this is where you really get to say what's on your mind. But what do you most want La Vital Core Salon listeners to know or take away from our conversation today? Well, I think, you know, some of what we touched on, this idea that the small, the incremental, can actually be quite powerful and beautiful. Um, And I'm going to sort of leverage that to tell you about, like, where Lavamay is going. And I think this is important for people to know um, for a few reasons, to kind of have the bigger picture of of us. But then also it's like if you know people who are interested in this and want to send them our way, I would so welcome that. But, you know, after the news about Lava May went public um, shortly after we launched, we started to receive 
request for help from as far away as in Babwe and Mongolia and New York and San Jose, California. And that astounded me because I didn't realize that this was a problem that was happening all over the world. And so I wanted desperately to be able to help people, and we were taking lots of calls and answering lots of questions until my board said, you have to stop that because you haven't even stabilized your own operations. You're going to tank yourself. But we always wanted to find a way to help. So in 2016, we created a platform, and we created our first open source toolkit that kind of walked people through A to Z, how you create mobile hygiene. And then last year, we um, launched our Center of Excellence, um, which is where we bring in you know, leaders from different communities who are interested in taking mobile hygiene back to their communities because there's such a need. So we train them, we provide ongoing resources, and we're now working to, connecting, uh, to connect them to seed funding and, and every way that we can to possibly help and ensure their success. And so what really drives and shapes this are two things. The first is that we know that the best and most sustainable solutions come from the communities where the problem exists. So often they could try and scale and be everywhere in the world, but that would be so foolish and incredibly expensive, and we would never be able to consistently offer radical hospitality in the way we do now. So it would be just so much better to give away what we know how to do and help other communities create their own solutions that they can tweak and modify to meet the specific needs of their community. Um, and the other part of this is this idea that we understand deeply that the biggest impact that we can have is by creating ripples. So I know that Lava May and creating mobile hygiene seems like this big grand thing, but in the overall scheme of things, we're like that first pebble that gets thrown into a pond and ripples out. So our impact, as great as it is, right, so since we're almost at our five-year anniversary since launching um, mobile hygiene, we have provided over 64,000 showers to 16,000 Californians. But we have also inspired or directly helped 115 communities around the globe create their own programs modeled after ours, and we're hoping to double or triple down on that opportunity in the next few years, because that's what really matters. When this is needed everywhere, then we need to get it everywhere until communities, our local governments, provide solutions that really end homelessness or, in the interim, address critical needs like access to hygiene and sanitation. My mind, my heart, my gut, everything just wants to, like, shoot laser beams out of it. This is <laughs> so generous, so smart, so amazing. I feel like I could put 150,000 more positive adjectives right there. <laughs> oh. <laughs> this is such amazing work. And I want to point out to everyone listening, this started with maybe an itch way down there in your subconscious, but a taxi ride. That's what like yeah. pretty much ignited this. So for everyone listening, if you love this story and you love hearing about the work of Lava May, or if your community needs it, you now have a place to hook into. You now can make that happen. But I also want to challenge all of the listeners not only support Lava May, 
But keep your eyes open in your own community and look. Look at where the problems are. Look at the things facing your neighborhood, your community, the streets that you walk down to go from your house or go go from work and think and notice what's what's broken and ask yourself what you can do about it. Because look at where it can go. Like, Donnie, you've taken it. The sky feels like a very loose limit for you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Kara. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing in the world. It's been a pleasure and it has been an honor, especially as I look around and see all the people standing shoulder to shoulder with me doing this work. I'm back with a couple quick notes before you skedaddle. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Thank you for continuing to share these podcast episodes with the women in your life. Thank you for subscribing. If you want to connect with Donise and Lava May or learn about any of the resources that we mentioned in this episode, you can find all those links and resources in the show notes over at levitalcoursalon.com. That's L-E, vital, C-O-R-P-S, salon.com. If you want new episodes to be sent right to your email inbox twice a month, don't forget to text the word salon to 444-999. That's three fours and three nines. Merci beaucoup to Craig Snyder for producing this show, Darlene Victoria for helping to do all the digital eye dotting and T crossing, and Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone and the High Dials for the theme song. Don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you. <laughs>